Well, this is our final sermon in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13. And it ends in an anticlimactic way. And we'll get into why that is as we move through the sermon this morning. I know many of you, if not most of you, are familiar with Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, it's often studied in our humanities classes, even in high school and college. Um, it is the most famous sermon that Edwards ever preached and the most famous sermon in the Great Awakening. And it was delivered by Jonathan Edwards about 280 years ago this year on July 8, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. And it was electrifying, to say the least, God so blessed that particular sermon that wails and cries could be heard audibly in the congregation and the fear of God was being expressed from the lips of the people. The Great Awakening was a move of the Holy Spirit in our nation in which an estimated 5% of the population at that time in the colonies were transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, that very same year in which that sermon was preached, and that very same year in which that transforming power of Christ came to rest upon the people, and the very same year that those wails and cries of repentance could be heard in the congregation, Edwards wrote a book called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. Because... There had been so much phenomena taking place around the revival where people thought they were converted, but weren't. This is similar to how the book of Nehemiah ends. Nehemiah is not a fairy tale. It doesn't end with a happy note. And they all lived happily ever after. If it was a Hollywood movie, it would have ended with Pastor Thad's sermon last week at the end of chapter 12 in verse 43 where we read these wonderful words. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Roll the credits. But that's not the way it ends. We might call the book of Nehemiah the rise and fall of Reformation and Revival. There is a brutal realism to the way that this book ends. Nehemiah actually ends on a downer. The end of the book of Nehemiah feels anticlimactic. And in the history of Reformation and Revival, almost every great movement of God spins off some downsides. In fact, to give you an illustration a little closer to home, about 60 years after the events of the Great Awakening, Kentucky began to experience its own revival. The Red River Revival of 1800 in Logan County, led by James McCready, a Presbyterian and Reformed pastor in those days. The Logan County Revival quickly spread into the Cumberland region of southwestern Kentucky and Middle Tennessee, it expanded outward in all 
directions attracting the attention of Methodists as well as leaders in the Shaker and Cumberland Presbyterian movements, all of whom attended the revival meetings. And in writing in 1801, James McCready, the pastor that I just mentioned, characterized the revivals of the previous summer and fall as, quote, the most glorious time that our guilty eyes have ever beheld, end quote. And yet, it was not without its downsides. D.A. Carson notes about that very revival, quote, that after the revivals began, there were an awful lot of -of out-of-wedlock babies born nine months later, end quote. And that can partially be understood where you got this great religious fervor and this uh, sense of intimacy among the people. Sin gets a foothold as well and begins to exercise its influence. And as the revival spread, so did the controversy that was associated with them, increasingly threatening the unity of Presbyterianism. The complaints of some Presbyterian pastors to what McCready was leading included things like the use of hymns instead of the old Scottish Psalter, the practice of night assemblies and all-night meetings, toleration of emotional outbursts and physical exercises such as shouting and falling during the meetings, inclusion of ministers of other denominations and communion services, and the licensing, licensing of people to ministry outside of the pastoral office. One article on this particular revival in Logan County says, quote, the widening schism culminated eventually with the formation of a separate denomination, the Cumberland Presbyterians, one which such church, such church we have in our own community, named for the region associated with the revivals. The controversy grew hot at Cane Ridge in 1801 as the bodily exercises of general enthusiasm reached greater levels and grew more unruly. Conservative Presbyterians became skeptical and were concerned, among other things, about the number of people admitted to the communion based upon only ecstatic experiences. Seems like they got got a hold of a copy of Distinguishing Marks of the Spirit of God by Jonathan Edwards, read it, and began to implement it even in our own region of Kentucky. What's the point of all that? Brothers and sisters, Reformation revival is shot through with issues and problems. It comes with the turf. There is no such thing as a pristine, pure revival. There's no such thing at the end of the book of Nehemiah either. Nehemiah served about 12 years in Jerusalem during the building of the wall and the subsequent revival that took place among the people, and he was part of it. But then he had to go back, remember? He had to go back to Susa, which is where he promised... um, which he, which he, what, he, what he promised the Persian king at the time, that he wouldn't be gone forever in Jerusalem, but that he would, he, would, he would come back. And he did. And while he was there, while we're not told how long he was in the Persian court before he got word of all that was happening down in Jerusalem again, he did eventually return. And what he found was spiritual deterioration. That's what chapter 13 is all about. In Nehemiah 13, we're going to see what Nehemiah found when he returned how he responded, and how this both offers us a sense of realism about what's capable even among a genuine work of the Spirit of God, and then also what we are to generate out of this by way of hope. So we're going to look at six ways in which Reformation and renewal went off the rails. Six signs that their renewal was waning. Six signs that they needed further reformation, because reformation never lasts. 
Here's the first way that their renewal went off the rails. Legalism. Legalism. That is when my standards become more important than God's standards. Notice verses 1 through 3 again. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And soon as the people of Israel heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now Moses had expressed, expressly excluded Moabites and Ammonites from the religious assembly of Israel. In Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 to 5, because of their historical opposition to Israel and their infectious idolatry. And it appears here that the people of Israel in this day of Nehemiah are just doing what Moses told them to do. That is, in Deuteronomy 23, 3 to 5, we read the following. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation... None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the day when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Peor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. Now, if you read those verses and put them on top of Nehemiah 1 to 3, there's a lot of overlap. They are operating out of this understanding of Deuteronomy 23 in terms of the way they're implementing this practice. It seems that they're doing verbatim what God told them to do. However, something more may be happening here. I'm not sure of this, but I think verse 3 says that they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Previous verses indicated that Israel was one to separate from foreigners. Nehemiah 9.2, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the inequities of their fathers. Nehemiah 10.28, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. So I tend to think, I could be wrong here, that there's something different going on in verse 3. In Nehemiah 9 and Nehemiah 10, the people are separating themselves from the foreigners. But in Nehemiah 13, they're removing the foreigners from themselves. Instead of separating from foreigners, they're taking it a step further and they're removing the foreigners. Now it appears that the people are trying to be more holy than God. They are forbidding anyone into the covenant community who's not ethnically Jewish. That's why I call it legalism. They're taking a good and righteous requirement of God, which is that they separate spiritually from the people, and possibly making it an ethnic thing. Making it not so much who do you identify with spiritually, but what background are you culturally and ethnically. Perhaps they're practicing a form of kinism. At its core, kinism is the belief that God specifically ordained races and that he intends for us to preserve that division to one degree or another. It's a form of ethnic partiality, what we call racism today. We've seen throughout the history of the church that it's all too easy to justify ethnic partiality in the name of spiritual purity, isn't it? And that seems to be that they're caving into a form of legalism or perhaps racism in the congregation. Now, I tend to think that even when God gave the law about the Moabites, 
God himself offered gracious exceptions to this law. We know a woman named Ruth, don't we? Who was a Moabitess and became the grandmother of King David. Non-Jews who were willing to forsake their foreign gods were welcome among the covenant community, even in Nehemiah's day. Ezra 6.21 mentions that the Passover was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. This way is to be, this is the way it is to be in God's church. As all Christians are equal and valued in Christ as the ground level at the foot of, as the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The gospel has all the resources for us through faith to obliterate the boundaries that society puts around people, whether those boundaries be ethnic, like Jew-Gentile, or gender, man and woman, or economic, slave or free. It seems that the people stopped at Deuteronomy 23, 3 to 5 and implemented a rigid, unbiblical practice and forgot the verses that come a little bit later in Deuteronomy 23, where we read, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he's your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So God says. So it seems they've taken a stricter posture toward the community than even God himself did. They seem to be raising their standards above God's standards and shunning those whom the Lord would accept. Regardless, brothers and sisters, there's a lesson here for us, isn't there? We must be careful of elevating our perspectives above God's precepts and making them a test of fellowship more rigid than God himself has required. We're seeing this in our own day as even the Reformed movement itself begins to splinter over issues of perspective and perception rather than principle. The key issues in these Conflicts are sometimes doctrinal, yes, but oftentimes also political and social. They can include the passions that are stirred up by a previous presidency or the election or the January 6th events or the George Floyd incident surrounding his life and death, the Black Lives Matter movement, the critical race theory response, all of which are important and necessary things, but even matters related to the pandemic like masking or vaccinations or restrictions on in-person worship. Colin Hansen wrote just a few weeks ago, quote, Reformed theology no longer guarantees as much unity. From left to right, many pastors find more in common with even unbelievers who share their political and cultural assumptions than with believers who affirm the same doctrine. Allegiance to parties and politicians obscures friendships in the fog of suspicion and has overtaken so much of the, the American church. To our shame, many in the church have elevated their own political and cultural assumptions and made them a greater test for fellowship than the doctrines clearly stated in God's word. What is needed now is a biblical culture in the church that sticks to what is written. Elevating personal opinions to the level of biblical fact, jumping to rash judgments, assigning motives, breaking the ninth commandment with slander and false witness, and making tertiary matters a test for fellowship are signs of rot not renewal, and reveal that we have yet need for revival. Because revival wanes when legalism, when our standards are greater than God's standards. Second, a, a second evidence of waning revival in the people of Israel here is nepotism. That is when my family becomes more important than God's family. 
when my family becomes more important than God's family. In chapter 10, the people commit to obeying Scripture in three ways. You remember this? They would marry believers, they would honor the Sabbath, they would support the temple. Those are the things that they covenanted, recommitted to do in Nehemiah 10 during that covenant renewal ceremony that we considered a couple of weeks ago. But in chapter 13, we find all these same problems resurfacing. Remember how chapter 10 ends? We will not neglect the house of our God, the people said. Now read chapter 13, 11. Why has the house of God been forsaken? And in the next several verses, we're going to see the ways in which Israel breaks its own covenant in chapter 10. We're also going to see some overlap with the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the, in the Old Testament, and Malachi was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's, it's thought that Malachi prophesied during the time where Nehemiah was not there, when he had finished the work of the wall and the people had been spiritually renewed and then he returned to Susa. Well, Malachi came as a prophet and was seeing this before, and it's perhaps Nehemiah got word from even Malachi of what was happening and came back and found out. Because we re- if you read the book of Malachi, it's all the stuff that they're dealing with in Nehemiah 13. Malachi talks about shoddy worship and a corrupt priesthood and marriage to foreigners and robbing God by neglecting to pay for the temple. It's all the stuff that Nehemiah brings up in 13 as well. So we'll, we'll bring in what Malachi has to say periodically to help us understand more of the depth of Israel's fall here. But let's look at verses 4 to 6. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was re- related to Tobiah, remember him, right? He's not a favorable character in the story. He's one of God's enemies. Verse 5, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the grains of the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king. So the priestly family under Eliashib had a close relationship, obviously, with Tobiah's family, who was not an Israelite, one of Israel's enemies and scorners during this entire time. In fact, we read that he was one of the opposers of Nehemiah's work throughout the book in chapter 2 and chapter 4. But that phrase, close relationship, that is used, seems to indicate that they had intermarried in some way and joined their families together. Tobiah married a Jew, and his son, according to chapter 6, verse 18, had married another. So Eliashib gives Tobiah motel accommodations inside the temple. So now family ties appear to be more important than covenant faithfulness to God. No Ammonite should enter the assembly, and Tobiah gives him a suite. Or Eliashib gives Tobiah a suite there. This is Tobiah, the one who tried to kill Nehemiah, getting a spot in the temple to live under the priest's direction because he's a family member. And we know how awkward that can get, right? Eliashib has let family ties influence his obedience to God. Maybe he thought, well, Tobiah's a nice guy. He's a relative. He's going to be in the temple. That might get him converted. 
He, can, he lived there. He's going to be right there. I mean, it, you see how we justify all that? These rooms were places to hold temple articles and offerings and accommodate the Lord's servants. But by giving Tobiah a room, certain articles for worship weren't present. Conveniently, Tobiah threw all that stuff out. And those officiating the house of God were not taken care of. Eliashib dishonored God, and he hindered the people from worshiping God. Eliashib offended God because he doesn't want to offend a family member. He's unwilling to let a family member down in order to obey God. But what about us, brothers and sisters, and our families? Are we willing to make the hard calls in our families and among our friends as it relates to obeying God? Or do we bail them out and make excuses for their sin and our sin? Are we willing to confront or do our children and family and friends find in us a kind of passivity that makes us accomplices in their rebellion? Nepotism blinds and has a way of masquerading as innocent. Listen, brothers and sisters, no one, almost no one thinks they are giving preferential treatment to their house over God's house, and yet we as God's people do it all the time. We can baptize our good intentions and ask Jesus to affirm them and get mad at others who don't. Jesus would have told... Now, of course, he doesn't mean... Hold on. So, just one, one other thought on that. This is why Jesus was dead serious about family hatred. And I use that word intentionally. Is that not what he said? He who does not hate his own family cannot be my disciple? Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we literally hate our family. This is the same Jesus who honored his own mother at the cross and made sure she was cared for. Okay, we're not... But what's Jesus' point? You better love me a whole lot more than you love your family because that's where your discipleship is often going to be played out. And if you don't have a supreme love for me, it's not going to go well in how you relate to your family. That's his point. He wouldn't have said that if it wasn't a very real temptation for us, right? He wouldn't have had to use such strong, almost arresting, alerting language of hatred. But he used it because we can be guilty of nepotism. Some of us can fall into that so easily because we have warped definitions of biblical love. If we had a family member or a friend who was living in unrepentant sin, are we ever tempted to take their side because they're a family member or friend? If you had a family member or friend who was a church member living in unrepentant sin, whose side would you take in a church discipline case against them? The family member and friend or their sin or Jesus in the church? Do you love Jesus? more and love your children and your family and your friends for Jesus sake and are you or are you willing to overlook those things because you love Jesus just a little bit less than your spouse or your friend or a brother and sister professed brother and sister in Christ brothers and sisters we have to be on guard against this as well because nepotism is a sign that reformation is waning number three secularism Number three, secularism. 
When my house becomes more important than God's house. When my house becomes more important than God's house. The temple has gone into neglect here in Nehemiah 13. We've already mentioned that. Nehemiah comes back and he recognizes that the wood isn't being provided, the animals aren't being supplied, the priests aren't being provided for, the choirs have fallen into disuse. And with a lack of teaching from the Levites and a lack of singers to lead in the worship of God, Jerusalem's spiritual life is beginning to erode. Reformation and revival has drifted into a coolness and a lethargy and a spiritual indifference. Not making corporate worship a priority is an obvious sign of spiritual decline. Look at verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Not only was Tobiah living in the temple, supposedly on the dime of the, of the Israelites, but the provision for the clergy was being neglected and consequently they were forced to leave Jerusalem. Priests went to take care of themselves. God's plan was for them to be sustained by the tithes of the people, and the people had committed to doing that in chapter 10. But by chapter 13, the priests are the ones having to move to get a job to support their own families. Robbed of necessary support, these men had been compelled to go and work on the land in order to maintain their families. And with neglected teaching from the Levites and diminished worship from the singers, Jerusalem's spiritual life was markedly impoverished. The people appointed by God to maintain high standards were no longer there to do so. So it's little wonder that the laws about Sabbath were disregarded and those about marriage were ignored. See, one sin followed on the heels of another, right? When God's word was not read and studied and taught, serious defects are bound to follow. And what happened in Jerusalem is the culture was quickly secularized. Materialism and secularism became Judah's new God. There was an indifference to God's word and what the Levites taught. And everybody pleased themselves. And it was a recipe for moral, marital, and spiritual disaster. And people who persistently refused to listen to God did not have the resources to live satisfying, useful, and God-honoring lives. Now, I want to say this, that I'm so thankful for a congregation that believes this, that believes in the importance of generous giving in order to sustain the work of the church. You provide generously, even as I said a couple of weeks ago, for your pastors and you fund the work of the church, and it's a mark of great spiritual health. In fact, generously providing for those who teach the word of God to you enables all of us to reap bountifully from, their, from our ministry together. Galatians 6, 6 through 10. Let no one who has taught the word, or let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, he also will reap. Did you notice that comes in the context of making sure you have paid pastors? As much as a church is able to do so, to be able to fund the ministry of the word in the life of the congregation provides a spiritual renewal for the congregation, a means of spiritual... It's not the only means of spiritual renewal. I remember reading that and studying Galatians 6 and never thought about it in that context. He says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will form the flesh, reap corruption. That's what's happening in Nehemiah 13. They're not funding the Levites. They're not funding the priests. And they're reaping spiritual corruption. They're reaping what they sow. Rather, Paul says, the one who sows to the Spirit will also reap from the Spirit. And then he says, 
So then, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, but especially those who belong to the household of faith. And that's what Nehemiah's day and the, and the Jews living in Jerusalem were neglecting altogether. So we as pastors are thankful for you, church. We're thankful for a church that does this so, so well. I was reading an article um, this, uh, just a couple of weeks ago when I was beginning to prepare some of these thoughts on Nehemiah 13, and I read um, the following from a, from a Barna study, which uh, I, I sometimes take with a grain of salt sometimes, but they do do pretty thorough analysis. Um, it's a Christian polling firm that found that in the last two years, for various reasons, 29% of pastors said that they had given, quote, real and serious consideration for quitting being in full-time ministry within the last year. That's a third. And some of my pastor's friend, my own pastor friends didn't, didn't, were, were among that statistic. One pastoral testimony I read this week said, quote, without doubt, you'll see, you already are, a ton of pastors quitting. Most pastors actually hate conflict, so if you're going to pay me one quarter of what I could make on the market, why put up with this? When we're stressed out trying to be public health experts without the training to do it, trying to keep our own families from blowing up with COVID stress, getting criticized from both sides at once, and then having folks doing whatever they can to ruin us and get us run out of town, we love to just be trusted as friends and shepherds. So I understand why many folks have just said, I'm done. I'm not there yet, this writer says, but I hardly think I'm above it or guaranteed not to. I just pray to Jesus daily to not let me throw in the towel, end quote. That was sad to read. And thankfully, I think by God's grace and your, your loving support, we don't feel that way. But Ma this is because Malachi had challenged them. Malachi challenged him in Malachi 3, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. In other words, Malachi's saying, Israel, pay the Levites so that you will have spiritual bread that you can feast on. And then he says, Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Again, reap what you sow, right? God says, challenge me on this. If you will prioritize my house above your house, see if I don't provide everything your house needs when you provide everything my house needs. You sow faithful giving, you'll reap faithful blessing. But the Israelites refused to do that. And so they entered into further and further secularism and decay. Fourthly, a fourth sign that Reformation and revival was waning. Materialism. When my work becomes more important than God's work. When my work becomes more important than God's work. When God entered a covenant with the people... He gave visible signs of his love for and commitment to his people, right? He gave them the law, the tabernacle and temple, a ministry, that is the priests and the Levites, and a day, the Sabbath day. And so far in chapter 13, we've seen the people defile the first three. The word of God is disobeyed, the temple was desecrated, and the ministers were neglected. Now we'll see the day get discarded too. Verses 15 and 16 record that. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain, that is, they're working, and loading them on donkeys and also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. So working on the Sabbath, they're bringing loads of food into Jerusalem and they're selling them 
And then in verse 16, we read that foreigners who could care less about the Sabbath sold fish and all kinds of goods on the Sabbath as well. Now, the Sabbath laws were being ignored so they can make a few bucks on the side. So here we have the rise in materialism, the rise of profit over purity, the prizing of their work over God's work. Remember chapter 10, verse 31, what they said to God in the presence of that covenant renewal ceremony? When people come to sell items on the Sabbath, we will tell them to get lost. That's what they essentially said. That's the modern Red Fern translation of 1031. But they had covenanted, we won't work ourselves, and if anybody tries to come in and get us to buy stuff, we'll reject them. They do neither. Money, work, property, commerce has all replaced the Sabbath for the people of Israel. Their unique relationship to God was no longer visible to outsiders, and that was the whole reason God gave that covenant sign to begin with under the Mosaic administration. The particular administration of the Sabbath under the Old Covenant was meant to communicate, we're not like the nations. We are unique. We trust our God. We rest in our God. We look to our God for provision. We won't work seven days a week. But they were looking just like everyone else. God's work, what God wanted, was to display his glorious provision and grace to the people he had redeemed. But that required that they stop working. That required faith. And their faith required that they rest one day in seven. Cease working. Manifest to the nations that God is eager to provide for you and hope in him. But now, what would the nation see? A people just like themselves. Instead of seeing a people where God's will takes precedence over their own, where God's demands rule over their desires because God is a greater treasure than an extra payoff, they see something different. One more day of work, and that profit that it brings in, Sunday's a really good day. It's another seventh, maybe sometimes double my income. Does, do I really have to give anything to God? I mean, God understands, right? Raymond Brown says, God's people had abandoned their visible weekly emblem of loyalty and witness. Gentiles were no longer able to discern any distinctive difference between the Israelite believers and the people from other countries and cultures. Now, is there any sense in which, under the new covenant, God gathers us on the Lord's day in order to display through himself a people who have been redeemed for his glory? Of course. An assembled people is the way that God displays, in part, not exclusively, but in part, his glory. So when God's people gather together on the Lord's Day as individual Christians indwelt by the Spirit, we unite and become a special place in which Jesus dwells. We have our weekly opportunity here to honor our King together on Resurrection Sunday. But the temptation is to let our work become more important than God's work. I got family responsibilities. I got other stuff I got to do. And so we neglect gathering with the local church. But has that gone to the bottom of your soul as a matter of conviction? By God's grace, if I'm not sick, if I'm not seriously providentially hindered, I am not going to obscure God's glory. I am going to gather visibly with the people I have covenanted with, and I'm going to worship the triune God together. That's got to go to your heart as a matter not just of convenience, but of conviction regarding the, do the glory of God. You say, wait, uh, 
what are you talking about? Well, first of all, there are unbelievers in our midst every Sunday that need to have the glory of God revealed to them. And it comes in part by what, you, by what we are all doing together. Singing, praying, hearing the word of God with eagerness, fellowshipping afterwards. All the, the means of grace that's taking a place here. When we have baptism or the Lord's Supper, it's all there to display the glory of God. And, and if you think about it, how much would an empty parking lot of churches across this community say about God? They're not, he's not important to them either. So I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying that you've got to have a full parking lot in order for God to be glorified. God's glorified by 10 Tibetan Christians meeting in a house that no one knows about. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a visible, as much as possible, a visible display of God's people gathering together as God's people. And they were neglecting all that. Again, Raymond Brown says, In demanding that his contemporaries set aside that seventh day for the purposes God intended, Nehemiah was emphasizing the centrality of worship and the importance of witness. He was saying that loving obedience is better than a full purse. And it is. Because what, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Two more. We'll move quickly through these last two. Number five, relativism had begun to cause revival to wane. When my desires become more important than God's desires. Look at verses 28 through 30. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Now they had vowed not to marry partners that didn't share their faith. Yet upon Nehemiah's return, only a few verses later, we read where people are doing that very thing. Yesterday's enemies had become today's marriage partners. They couldn't... And, and what Nehemiah is shocked at is the level of paganism that has taken place in such a short time, especially reflected in the hearts of the children. Right? And this is why it's so important that... That, we, that, that, that there be marriage in the Lord because it affects generations. You want to cause children to be confused. Now, of course, God redeems, praise the Lord, situations like this, but it doesn't mean we walk into them with that expectation. We don't walk into disobedience, disobedience expecting God's grace and blessing. But what we see here is half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod, verse 24. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now, does that mean that they, he was against bilingual education? You should only learn one language. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about the influence of the culture and the paganism that had come into the home. He says, and that's what always happens. Some of us think, you know, engage in missionary dating and... And, uh, well, we'll win them to Christ. That's almost never how it happens. It goes the other way. The Bible teaches us it goes the other way. Don't be smarter than God. It almost always goes the other way, and it goes the other way here. They might have married with good intentions. Look, they're willing to go to the temple with me. She'll go to church. He at least listens to you when you preach. 
But we make all these excuses. They were in danger of losing their entire spiritual heritage. They were a generation away from total apostasy, from complete paganization. That's how long it takes. It doesn't take very long, does it? And this is what Malachi prophesied. What was the one God seek? What was God seeking in Malachi 3 or 2? Godly offspring, he says. Now notice, Nehemiah makes a biblical argument from the life of Solomon, which the brothers here who were at the retreat uh, got acquainted with quite well, or reminded with quite well. Verse 26, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, here's what Nehemiah says, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Verse 27, Shall we then, who were much less wise than Solomon ever was, Listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? They had learned nothing. Marriages to pagans had even occurred among the priestly circles. Eliashib's grandson had married the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. The priest's grandson, the high priest's grandson, became the son-in-law to the greatest enemy of Israel. We saw that in Solomon's life as well. It's interesting how easy we can justify disobeying God's word when it comes to marriage. As our culture, we've relegated marriage to a social construct and exercised our sovereign cultural right to redefine it. And because in our secularism, we've abandoned any notion that marriage is a divine institution that we aren't allowed to tamper with, it wasn't our idea. Marriage is not our idea. It's God's idea. But the problem isn't only out there, brothers and sisters. How many of us have been tempted or, in fact, justified relationships in this way? Christians will claim that they can live with someone with whom they're not married. Christians will enter into a dating with a guy or a girl who isn't yet a Christian. Christians will even blaspheme the name of God by calling down his blessing on their committed homosexual unions. Christians will divorce without biblical grounds. Husbands and wives who profess to be Christians will make a mockery of the gospel by refusing to sacrificially love and actively cultivate their own marriages and instead selfishly neglect each other or worse, actively abuse one another. And this is in the church. And this is all because our desires become more important than God's desires. We need to mourn over this reality, brothers and sisters. From where will we get our ethics? Fox News? CNN? Radio? Our own thoughts and opinions? Our own experiences? Or from the objective teaching of God's Word and our personal desires being submitted to them, contrary to the vacillating contemporary opinions all around us? Will you subject your lifestyle choices to the searing tests of Scripture? Will you value the input of your fellow Christians in the church? Or will you insist that you know better? Will you surround yourself with teachers who will supply for you what your itching ears are desperately craving? Or will you blaspheme God by attaching his blessing to your sin? May it never be. May it never be. Sixthly and finally, narcissism. When my cause becomes more important than God's cause. Now, narcissism can be defined various ways, but it's rooted in selfishness and self-importance, which, as the clinical definition says, quote, self-centeredness arising from failure to distinguish the self 
from external objects. That is the inability to separate who you are from how you and others perceive you. Now, I wouldn't say that Nehemiah is a narcissist. I say he has narcissistic tendencies. He has narcissistic tendencies in this chapter, and I want to show you how in two main ways. Number one, his agitated appeals, and number two, his aggressive actions. So hang with me here, okay? I'm not throwing Nehemiah under the bus. He's a godly man, but he has over-attached himself to his work in this chapter, and he is way out of bounds. Notice, first of all, his agitated appeals. Look at verse 29. He says, Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Nehemiah prays and he asks the Lord to remember the offenders on the day of judgment. He also cleanses the temple, but he leaves room for God's wrath. These verses in verses 30 and 31 summarize it. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign and I establish the duties and the priests and the Levites each in his own work. And I provided for the wood offerings at appointed time for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. It's like I'm stepping in here. Nobody else is doing the work. I got to do it. So I'll do it. And he offers a general prayer for God to remember everything that has happened and all the stuff that he's done in this book. Now he appeals this way two other times in this chapter. I want you to see them. Look at verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Look also at verse 22. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this day in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Now before his appeal, all of his other appeals in this book, are characterized by God and others. Remember your promises, O God. Remember your promises. Remember the covenant that you made. Remember these people. Have mercy on them. Now it's me, 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 me. He's the me monster. As J.I. Packer points out, the I becomes obtrusive in this chapter. Packer says he acted autocratically, which of course as governor... He could have done. But we read the following. I threw them out, verse 8. I gave orders, verse 9. I rebuked, verse 11. I called them together, verse 11. I put in charge, verse 13. I warned, verse 15. I ordered, verse 19. I stationed, verse 19. I warned, verse 21. I commanded, verse 22. I rebuked, called curses down on them, beat some, pulled out their hair, made them take an oath, verse 25. I drove them away. I purified the priests and the Levites. I, 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 I. Nehemiah, get over yourself, man. Now, let me give the other side of this, all right? We have to bear in mind the conventions and expectations of our smooth, post-Christian, relativistic, secular, amoral Western culture are not necessarily in line with the truth of God's Word, okay? Any embarrassment we might feel at Nehemiah's fortrightness could be a sign of our own spiritual and mortal limitations rather than his. Maybe he had more of a fire in his belly for the glory of God than any of us ever would ever have. 
It is, after all, the assumption of our day that niceness is the essence of godliness. And that needs to be exploded. And we shouldn't necessarily have an immediate response that's negative toward Nehemiah's anger. Perhaps he's just feeling a a sincere godly outrage that expresses itself not in some sort of self-absorbed resentment or in personal hostility, but the anguish of a broken heart that longed for God's glory and hated all that obscured and obstructed God's glory. And if Nehemiah upsets us by seeming to be a judgmental egoist, we should remember that he believed in the absolutes of divine revelation and the reality of God's judgments with a robustness that few nowadays match. Belief in absolutes is out of fashion, and relativism and pluralism have become the politically correct pollutions of our air we breathe. And any affirmation of what purports to be universal truth is thought of as bad manners. So we're just offended by the way Nehemiah is jealous for the glory of God. Is that the case, though? I don't think so. It might be innocent, but it makes me a little nervous. Sometimes when old men, like Nehemiah here, come to the end of their ministry, they look back and they're not satisfied with the results. And their identity can become too tied to their service, and they over-identify with their work, and they start to become a little too self-absorbed and entitled. Nothing in this text condemns Nehemiah, but it is a little troubling when you read it, compared to how he has behaved the entirety of this book. Sometimes a person is used by God to bring about a reformation and a revival, and later on in in their life, they begin to tear down what they built. They can get cranky and begin to resent what's happened and grow bitter and complain about what others are doing and what they aren't able to do any longer. And having felt that his labor in the Lord has been all for nothing and over-identifying with the work that he gave himself to, he's profoundly aggressive and agitated about it all. It's very uncharacteristic. Now let me just show you again how uncharacteristic this is of Nehemiah. He tells us three times in this chapter that he's very angry. 8, 21, 25. He manifests this through judging the people. He comes upon it. He says this is an evil thing, verse 7, a wicked thing, verse 7, and a terrible wickedness, verse 27. And I read a lot of commentators that said, yeah, it's just him being like Jesus when Jesus went into the temple, right? And yes, Jesus did cleanse the temple in a way similar to Nehemiah. But also, he wasn't eaten up with himself in the process the way Nehemiah was. There was even a humility and a grief in the anger that the Lord Jesus expressed when he was cleaning the temple. He explodes. Nehemiah explodes. He throws all of Tobiah's furniture out in verse 9. He orders the adjoining rooms to be purified. He sees the desecration extend beyond Tobiah's room, and he restores the temple items himself. He rebukes and confronts the officials twice. He gives another rebuke, this time a theological one, when he reminds them what happened regarding breaking the Sabbath. He curses them. He grabs people physically and gets physically violent with them. I want you to notice this in verse 25. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to sons or take your daughters for your sons or for yourselves. 
Now, as a civil leader, did he have a right to do this? Sure, but this is very uncharacteristic of Nehemiah. When he was responded with physical threats earlier in the chapter, what did he do? Trust God. Walk away. He didn't fight, but now he's fighting. Right? Why didn't he grab Sandballot by the hair and throw him on the ground and get on top of him and work him over like an MMA fighter? He could have, but he didn't. Because that's not what humble, self-control, quiet confidence, resolute host, humble prayer looks like in a godly leader. What happened to that man who demonstrated such great self-control and quiet confidence and resolute hope and humble prayer and a seemingly endless threshold for dealing with the mess of sin? He reached his breaking point, that's what, and he got in the flesh. To be clear, Nehemiah is still a prayerful man, but something has changed. There's an irritability, an exhaustion, a frustration, a shortness of temper, and a quickness to judgment, I think, here in Nehemiah. And this is what happens when we begin to act like our cause is God's cause. I think this is one of the ways the broader evangelical church is contributing to the mess in our culture right now. Sadly, the aggressive, disruptive, and unforgiving mindset that characterizes so much of our culture has found a home in many American churches. Think of Mark Driscoll, who used this very portrait of Nehemiah as a license to do everything he did. As he publicly preached from the pulpit, I would like to grab a couple of my elders by the hair and throw them against the wall. As the congregation sat around and said, yeah, that's normal. He said, quote, there's a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus, and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain when we're done using Nehemiah to justify it all and disqualifying himself from ministry in the process as a domineering bully who has no place in God's church as a leader and yet is still leading today. This fits with our cultural moment, though. We love leaders like that. Many Christians are disinclined to heed calls for civility. Anything short of cruelty in our day is seen as weakness. And we import that into the church and the way it views leaders. Instead of those who are shepherds who are called to die, we say, I want you to get out there and fight, man. They feel that everything they value is under assault, and they need the fight to protect it. And yet the early Christians transformed the Roman Empire, not by demanding, but by loving. Not by angrily shouting about their rights in the public square, but by serving when the people who persecuted them were doing so, which is why Christianity grew so quickly and took over the empire. It didn't happen through fighting, it happened through dying. Can we learn from church history, church? Once Christians gained political power under Constantine, that beautiful, loving, sacrificing, giving, transforming church became an angry, persecuting, killing church that led into the Middle Ages. Let's get to know church history and not repeat ourselves. We're, as we approach our cultural Rome, let's do well. Let's sacrifice, let's love, let's speak truth regardless of what it costs. But know that it's going to cost if we're going to be faithful. We're out, of the, we're out of the elites, brothers and sisters. We're headed to the margins. Are you willing to go there with the faithful church of Christ down through the centuries? As that great cloud of witnesses calls to us and says, we didn't have it easy either. We didn't have it easy. Are you willing to go there with us? Are you willing to go outside the camp bearing the reproach that he endured for here we have no lasting city? 
Yes, we vote. Yes, we pray. Yes, we labor. Yes, we elect. Yes, we do all that. But we do that with an eye to here we have no lasting city. We are seeking the city that's to come. Take everything away. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. And that, my friends, will show Jesus. In this era of acute anxiety, it's so easy to forget the way of the cross. Great fear seizes us, and we reveal through that fear that, sadly, me, I'm far more worldly than I ever imagined. The toothpaste tube gets squeezed, and when I start to see some awful stuff coming out of me, blessed are the politically powerful, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the cultural warriors, for they shall be called children of God. Now, none of this on the part of the church is an intentionally malicious enterprise. We're just trying to be faithful, but we're getting played. We think we can play by the world's rules and accomplish kingdom ends. It never works that way. All it does is bring further destruction in its wake. And that's why Nehemiah ends the way it does. The ending forces us to lean into the future. At the end of the Old Testament era, the last piece of history in the Old Testament is monumental failure. God's professing people are flaky. God's leaders are shaky. God's people can't keep the law even with the very best of intentions. In spite of all the reform and all the commitments, at the end of the day, they're back to square one. And brothers and sisters, Nehemiah ends on a bummer, so we'll look for a savior. That's why Nehemiah ends on a bummer. We can't keep the law. You can't. I can't. No matter how many New Year's resolutions we drum up, no matter how much effort we put in, we can't do it. We need a greater king. We need a greater David. Did you notice how David's name keeps appearing repeatedly as Nehemiah comes to an end? They had the priests. They had the temple. They had the sacrificial system. They didn't have a king. And what do we read? The very next time God acts, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's come. Our king has come. The temple has come. The sacrifice has come. The priest has come. The king has come. Forgiveness has come. Salvation has come. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Praise God! Finally, someone to save us from us! The one born in Bethlehem keeps the law of God. This obedient servant obeys where Israel failed. This man whose zeal for God's house consumed him took our curse. Had his back beating, his hair pulled out, his face spat upon his body abused to bear our sins in his body on the tree that we might be declared righteous and that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Romans 8, 3 and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that... Oh, praise God for that. In order that. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We have hope this side of the cross, this side of the Spirit, that this will not be the case. There will not be this mass defection of all of God's true people. In fact, Jesus will ensure it does not happen. So if God in His mercy, brothers and sisters, should grant us revival, we will thank Him for it. But don't expect everything to be hunky-dory, peaches and cream, bed of roses, happiness and integrity everywhere. Immediately, there will be false voices. The devil will get his foot in with some hypocrites. There will be new standards of legalism and new need for discernment and calls for fresh repentance because reformation isn't magic. It doesn't erase all sin and problems and effects of the curse. That awaits the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, at the end of the age. The ultimate transformation occurs when Jesus himself comes again, and to that we look, and for that we wait. And so we await the second coming of the Lord Jesus, who will once for all make all things new, and we, his redeemed, will live in a new Jerusalem, apart from sin and shame forever. Reformation never lasts, but our Redeemer will, and in him we have hope. Now, just for the sake of time, worship team, uh, we won't sing, okay? I've gone too far over, and I don't want to keep our nursery any longer. But thank you all for even preparing, because I know you were getting ready to come up here and lead us. But I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer, and then Pastor Thad is going to come with our announcements and benediction, and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray together. Father, we began this service by singing all creatures of our God and King and lifting up our voices and singing to you and being reminded by our brother John that we are to make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth, we responded with joy. We sang of your gospel. We were led by our pastor Thad to consider mourning and the place of mourning over our sin and yet the gospel hope that you visit the contrite, that you visit those who tremble under your word. And then we sang, give me Jesus. And Lord, the word that you have given us in Nehemiah 13 is a sobering word. In and of ourselves, we are like this. We are legalistic and nepotistic and secular and materialists and relativists and narcissists. Not in any full-blown sense of either one of those ways, by your grace, but we have all the seeds of that kind of stuff sitting in us. But we thank you that's not the last word. We thank you the Bible doesn't end with Nehemiah 13. But it, end, it begins again with a new creation, a new Christ, the Son of David. And it ends with a glorious picture of him making all things new. So thank you that we leave this service not as those who are defeated, but those who have gospel hope because we are the objects of his affection. We are his beloved children. All you have shown us is grace, love, and mercy. And now and forever, we are your children. Anger and wrath, sure condemnation should have been our portion, our just reward, but we've never seen it. We never will know it because your loving kindness enfolds our lives. 
Lord, thank you for your great love. Any among us this morning who are living an existence characterized by the people of Israel in Nehemiah's day, would you show them the hope of Christ? Would you show them a way out of slavery to self, the worst kind of bondage to live in, being in bondage to ourselves? But when we are set free, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. We are never more free than when we are submitted body and soul, life and death to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so do that for our friends among us this morning. And thank you for the gospel hope of a risen Redeemer and a coming King who will make all things new and continue to help us as his weak and wounded and weak and weary and and faltering children to carry forth that gospel and to show in our weakness that he is strong. We pray all these things in his strong and mighty name. Amen. Pastor, thank you.